This is Iron Mike Stedman. And as always, I want to thank you for tuning into my show, The Legendary Dog Whistle Brandon. Today on DWB, I'm joined by fellow Naval Academy grad turned serial entrepreneur, Justin Nasiri, founder and CEO of Executive Presence, which provides a fully managed LinkedIn presence for CEOs and business leaders. Shortly after I discovered the veteran entrepreneurial ecosystem back in 2017, I came across Justin and his podcast, Beyond the Uniform. At the time, Justin and Scott Mackis were the only Naval Academy grads I knew with podcasts. I even had a chance to be a guest on Justin's show to discuss Ironbound Boxing. And at the time, I never would have imagined I'd be interviewing him for my own show one day. Although it took almost five years for it to happen, it was well worth the wait. I originally came into today's interview expecting to talk about Justin's podcast and his new company, Executive Presence, which we do get into, but it turned into Justin sharing lessons learned for more than a decade of entrepreneurship. I'll say it once and I'll say it again. There are no rules in audio. So although I try to focus mainly on branding on DWB, I took this as an opportunity to do a deep dive on Justin's journey thus far. So without further ado, Gunny, get them ready. Yo, saddle up, lock and load. You're listening to Dog Whistle Branding, brought to you by the team at Ironbound Media and the Lions Pride, where we provide no fluff and high impact brand strategy and business coaching for veteran owned businesses to keep you in the fight and not face down in a rice paddy. I'm your host, Iron Mike Stedman, the godfather of Dog Whistle Branding, founder of Ironbound Media and business coach at the Lions Pride. Before we jump into the show, make sure you subscribe to our newsletter at the link in the show notes or visit our website, dogwhistlebranding.com to stay up to date on all things DWB. All right, get out your pen and paper and get ready to build a dog whistle brand. Saddle up, lock and load, Justin. Welcome to Dog Whistle Brand. What's going on, my brother? Good to see you, man. I feel like um, we don't have a lot of touch points, but we've had a long history. And uh, when you're, I think you sent me a note on LinkedIn or we had an exchange, and I just feel like you're one of those people that whenever I see your name or face pop up, it's a good feeling. And uh, yeah, I just really welcome the opportunity to chat with you. Listen, I got to give you your flowers the same way I did Scott Mackis. When I became an entrepreneur, right, I didn't know a lot of people that were doing what you're doing, let alone from the Naval Academy. Um, and right around that same time, you know, for my brand, Ironbound Boxing, I've been featured in a couple articles and stuff like that. I came up on your radar. I came up on his radar. But you were the only people I knew that were doing podcasting from, like, the Naval Academy. Like, back in the day, it was like that fringe thing, right? It was like for people on the Internet playing, like, Dungeons & Dragons. Like, those were the podcasters. Um, and I remember Beyond the Uniform, his Service Academy Business Mastermind. And like early on, like I, I don't think people understand of like when you're stepping out into the unknown. And this was right when I left my full time job. So I was like going all in to try to bring up a for profit vision of Ironbound Boxing. It's having guys like you that I could see to show like, hey, you can be like an academy grad and be an entrepreneur. Like it is possible. Like I was like reaching. You know, and so although we hadn't interacted much outside of being on your podcast, right, I still very much look up to you guys in the sense of showing me what was possible. Thanks, man. It's it's also humbling to see how many people had been on have been on the show and then just gone on to just do unbelievable things, yourself included. 
But I think for me, it's also a good reminder, especially like with something with podcasting, it's really like, it's like you're finding your voice in a very public way and you're iterating and making mistakes. And that's kind of like for entrepreneurship and podcasting, that's the only path I know is like dive in, get messy, learn. And I know there's people who can do that perhaps in private and without the scrutiny. But for me, it's like, you're just kind of in the arena each week you know, learning and doing, and that's the way that I've grown everything I've done. And and I respect you for doing that too, man. You put yourself out there in a really public way. And for people who don't do that, they I don't think they fully appreciate the um, strength of character, in my view, it takes to, to, to put yourself out there publicly, full stop, and, and to get the good and the bad that comes with that. Yeah, hundred percent, man. And I, I get you. Got took a lot of bread early on, you know that because you know we're academy guys, military veterans, not a lot of self promotion. And you know, here you are on podcast, right? People are seeing you; they're very visual. And let's be honest, I know there are haters out there. Yeah, I, I, and I think that the larger and larger you grow, the more haters there are. But I think that's also a skill to be able to listen to the people whose opinions you matter, who matter to you, and then let the rest go. But it's, 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 it's a struggle. So I would love for you to bring everyone up to speed on where you are now, um, and what I want to dive into a couple of things, not only just podcasting, but you've done like multiple go to markets at this point. So you, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. I remember there was a time, you know, back right around that time, right? Like, that's what led me to quit my job. You know, I'd been on, you know, Fox News. I had done all these things. Little people didn't know I had still had like $5,000 in a bank account. It wasn't necessarily transitioning to like revenue and donations. Yeah, it was building brand credibility. But like, I thought like, oh, this opportunity, this is going to be the one. Or this opportunity is going to be the one. And WeWork invited me to a uh, summer camp at the time when they were doing their summer camps to speak. And that's what kind of primped me to be like, I need to be able to go do stuff like this. But none of that actually is going to get you to, like, people think that stuff is what works, like all that PR, but it's like that grind behind the scenes. And you've done it over and over again. And so I would love, that's what I'm excited to talk to you about, you know, before you bring us, after you bring us up to speed. Yeah, you know, I'll, I'll kind of just rewind the clock and give the 60 second version. So Naval Academy submarines, five years, got out and went to business school, was going to go do consulting in New York, started a company instead, uh, raised about $2 million, $3 million in funding from Google's chairman, Eric Schmidt, for that first company. At the time, that felt like a lot of money. Now it's like barely a seed round. Um, and since then have kind of had, um, I've, I've built and sold three businesses, but none of them are anything to write home about. And I kind of, you know, look back, I guess we re rewrite our autobiography every year. When I look back, I kind of view 10 years of basically failed entrepreneurship, of, of trying, pouring my soul into something. Um, and then the, the roller coaster that you might be able to relate to where there's moments of delusion of grandeur where I feel like I'm going to have a billion dollar company. And then there's moments where I can't even make payroll. And so that roller coaster of my identity getting whiplash along with it was, you know, a tremendous amount to bear. Um, for me in this moment, what's most exciting is I, I feel like at the helm of, of a company that I hope to run for the next five to 10 years. And I see the 10 years of failed entrepreneurship through a different lens where it's literally on a weekly basis where I'll have an interaction or I will make a decision and I feel the weight of 
accumulated failure behind it where I'm choosing to do it differently this time. And it might be a function of just my own thick headedness of it takes so many failures to finally realize like, oh, I have to hire people differently or I need to set up a contract differently. But I'm so grateful for where I've ended up because it really does give me that hindsight of like, I just I just really appreciate the right decisions I'm making right now are on the heels of just screwing it up so royally a thousand times. But it gives me a new perspective on what has been a very long journey getting here. And, and just kind of one last thing, and then I'll, I'll take a breath. But um, the most recent chapter is I started a company called Executive Presence, and we can go deep into where that came from. But essentially, I was running a separate company, which I've since sold, and Executive Presence with this idea that's just barely over a year old at this point. And the idea, which I'll talk about, uh, just took off in a way that I'd never experienced, where in the first five months, I bootstrapped it to 100000 in monthly recurring revenue in under six months. And before, when I had done that, I had had $3 million in funding. It took me three years to get there. So to, to kind of get this sense of just like, wow, there is something here, the biggest insight for me that I'd share with your audience is I realized the power of product market fit, where... For the last 10 years, I associated entrepreneurship with pushing this boulder up a hill, which at times I think it is, but this has given me a taste of like, wow, when you strike the right chord, things can be easier. And when you really hit the timing right, it doesn't have to feel like every day is pushing that boulder up. And so, um, you know, just that, to, to, well, let me, let me pause there. I, I'm sure I'm covering a little bit too much ground. No, and that's a non-obvious insight, right? This whole idea of product market fit. I just did a workshop on this. Like you need to find the market for your product or service before you launch it. Because otherwise you're like swimming upstream. And there's all this myth about, oh, you have this great idea, but there's so much that goes into it. I'm actually reading this book. I might've plugged already, The Myth of the Idea and the Upside Down Startup by Professor Newton M. Campos, PhD. He studied entrepreneurship all over the world for years, peer-reviewed. It's more than just the idea. Like, it's like all these, do you have the distribution? Do you have the social network? Do you have all these things? Are people actively spending money in this space? Do you bring some kind of tactical advantage of deep industry expertise that says you're the one for this problem? And then we're gonna work our way up to what idea makes the most sense. But people are getting slaughtered out there, man. It's like- <laughs> It's tough too, because there's part of the story, which is endurance and persistence and tenacity, which is vital. But when I do the postmortem on my very first startup, that persistence and tenacity was a huge liability. Like I, I kept on in a direction that didn't make any sense. And in retrospect, I had very smart people telling me like, this isn't the right product, like you need to do this instead. And in retrospect, it was just a few swim lanes away from something that would have been really big. But I was so committed and so tenacious that I just plowed through ahead. And so I feel like I really underestimated the value of just rapidly iterating and listening to the market and tweaking until there's that ignition point where it just goes up in flames in a good way. And, and I feel like I only know that now having tasted a company that feels like it catches flame and, and has its life of its own. Like, I feel like it's 
very quickly teaching me that uh, I, I wish I would have experienced that earlier because I would have thrown in the towel a lot more uh, more fast on other other ventures. I'm telling you, I felt the same with uh, my on-site boxing. Like, yeah, I was making money and I was paying myself a lifestyle, but man, it was tough. You know, you're like looking for money under tables and just trying to get it, you know. Then all of a sudden the pandemic hits and it goes into half. And so it was really a battle versus when you jump on a call and somebody asks you what you do, when can we meet? That's like a whole different conversation. And so we want our listeners to feel that. And, you know, I say this over and over again. The reason I started this podcast, because I saw a gap in entrepreneurial education for veterans, which was, yeah, we're really good at coming up with pitch decks and yada, yada, yada. But going to market is a whole separate beast and you can get punched in the face. And so the more we can make people avoid that, um, the better. So really trying to create a, a playbook for the community. Now, I'm going to get vulnerable here. OK, in my mind. Right. And I was actually talking to my business coach about this. Right. I didn't go to business school. I went to Rutgers, got my master's in American studies. Uh, but, um, you know, sometimes you're like, what do they know there that other people don't, you know, whether from product marketing, et cetera. And in the back of my mind, I'm like, oh, should I go to graduate school and study product marketing, you know, take it to the next level? But then I'm like, no, I just need to keep staying in the fight, creating my own insights. Was there pressure for you as a as a Stanford grad, a Naval Academy grad of like, oh, man, we figure this stuff out. Right. Like we're going to, you know, did you feel like you that education really taught you how to go to market? I don't I don't think for me, but I feel like I learned so much more by doing than in an academic setting. And in retrospect, for me, there was so much I didn't know about business. I don't even think I valued the education at the time or realized how much I didn't know and how much I probably likely should have invested in learning. I think that um, one thing I think about a lot is networks and, and, and maybe it's always we, we desire what we don't have. But when I see people that go to really great companies beyond just the branding that gives them and there's some value there, they end up meeting people that I, I could be off on this, but I, I imagine that those connections translate to deals down the road or hiring or partners or things like that, that I think can be an exponential growth. And um, I, I just brought on a, a pretty senior hire who has a very impressive background. And I'm starting to see that like I, I enviously she's, you know, probably 10 years younger than me. I enviously look at the experience that she gained that I didn't because I went instead of to a big company, I started something. And so sometimes I long for the training that she got at Boston Consulting Group and having two or three years doing that. And then I also find myself looking at her with longing of the network she has where she's got really good connections. So I'll tell you the biggest pro that I got from business school at Stanford was the, the people that I met and the, the network that I gained. But I'll also tell you the biggest liability is uh, the mindset game of seeing people that literally have now started billion dollar companies. And for me, that ends me in this comparative loop of like, oh, wow, why didn't I do that? Or you see people who are now at the heads of major, major companies. And so I think that there's a, a way to build resilience to that. But the temptation to compare becomes really high because you're around these people, some of who are just really winning the career lottery yeah i'm actually gonna do an episode on that we call it keeping your keeping your eye on your own paper here in newark you know so you see other people's brands you think it's cool it's like watch your own paper don't worry about that 
But that comparison traps for a lot of veteran entrepreneurs, for a lot of academy grads, for sure. People look at us, they're like, man, y'all are killing it. You know, they don't see the, <laughs> the sausage making behind the scenes. Yeah, you never see the, the argument with the spouse or you never see the up at 2 a.m.s. Like you just see the, the great things and not all the crap that goes with it. Now, the brand that you're, I would believe, that you're most known for, that I know you for, was Beyond the Uniform. And again, podcasting was for like Dungeons and Dragons people back at that stage, right? What made you launch that podcast? And then were you surprised at the platform you were able to build with it? I can think of two kind of inciting incidents. One was um, we were in San Diego visiting my wife's best friend and her husband's a Marine. And I was out of the military for a couple of years at that point and a lot of Marines at that party. And they were just kind of doing what we all do when we're together, which was bitch and moan. And, you know, their, their bitch and moaning was about what are we going to do when we get out of the Marine Corps? And it just kind of planted this. It just reminded me of this pain point of like, oh, that really sucks. Like, I remember that. That sucks. Not knowing what you're going to do. And all the guys on my submarine, none of them knew what they wanted to do. That, that really sucks. And so that kind of stuck with me. And then six months later, I was in the Portland airport catching a layover. And I, I just was listening to like Tim Ferriss. And I was like, Oh, here's a scalable solution. I don't have the time, energy or ability to solve the problem of what people are going to do. But I do have the curiosity to find other vets and just shine a spotlight and say, Okay, here's what it looks like to be an ESPN photographer. Here's what it looks like to become CEO of Pepsi. Like I don't have to have any answers. I just have to have questions. And so you know, I'll tell you the behind the scenes on it, because it's, you know, 470 episodes and half a decade now, there have been times where I look at that and I look at how much I've poured myself into it. And there's part of me that has resentment. I'm like, oh, man, like, how did I not find a way to monetize this? Like, I, I'm like way in the hole financially for like what I've put into it from a time and money standpoint. And so I have these like frequent times where I have this bitterness of like, oh, man, maybe I should have put that time elsewhere. And then I have times where like my company executive presence, where a big part of what we do is we meet with like people running billion dollar companies and interview them and turn their interviews into LinkedIn content. I'm like, wow, I'm able to do that because I had 460 repetitions of interviewing people and I got really good at it. And I had the idea for the company because of it. And so I feel like it's another one of those you know, where are you at in your journey where I, I, I'm benefiting right now from being at a point of a relative high where I'm seeing what Beyond the Uniform was. And like, yes, it was a great learning experience and it was a great network and a great building, uh, brand building experience. But I also want to be clean. And like, there were so many times where I had a tremendous amount of resentment or I, I tried to like monetize it and it just blew up. It was just like so many failures where I was like, at times I'm like, maybe this is what I do for a living. And even in retrospect, it was never really big enough to be what I wanted out of a career. So I just shared that, you know, trying to be vulnerable as well as like, sometimes when you're in the journey, it doesn't really make sense of why you're doing something or what value it holds. And, um, but I'm grateful that I did it because, you know, executive presence wouldn't have been possible without that. You were also one of the early people in podcasting, right? So a lot of like, honestly, like I'll tell you, when I launched Ironbound Media, Right. I knew that uh, it was a red ocean in terms of monetizing podcasts off of ads, you know, and I knew how many uh, listeners like you let other people place value on your audience. So I decided to launch my agency off of production, the behind the scenes stuff instead of monetizing a podcast. 
um, directly. And so, but a lot of that was learned from people that went before. And there is this immense amount of pressure around, oh, you need to monetize, you need to monetize. But I try to tell people, what do you want to be known for? What do you want to lead the conversation around? And that's really where I see like the value in podcasting um, in terms of brand building. I appreciate you being vulnerable in the sense of like, yeah, but like you showed up. That's the other thing. You showed up. I mean, I think when we did our episode, you were like in the basement, right? You had your- 100%. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, it's fascinating. You know, another thought with that too is like, and I remember this was probably years ago. You sent me a note on LinkedIn because we just kind of, you know, ping each other every once in a while. And you said something which was actually really impactful. It was like, dude, you've got like, what I, what I heard was like, you've got your fingers in a lot of things, dude. Like, what are you doing? And then another good friend of mine shortly after that, he was kind of like pretty even more direct. He's like, dude, you've got a ton of little fiefdoms. Like, what's the empire you're building? And and maybe maybe there's a method to the madness of like at a certain part of your life, you're dabbling in a lot of things. But I also feel grateful where like, you know, it took me a long time to get here, but I kind of got rid of everything else on my plate. And I'm just 99% in on executive presence and 1% kind of dabbling. But there's also a certain uh, fulfillment for me that comes from building more depth rather than playing the drums and trying to do all of these, these things, you know, in my case, poorly. What did you like the most about podcasting? I think... Um, you know, this is gonna be hard to narrow down to one. So I'll give you a couple. But I, I think that yeah. podcasts are one of the few ways I know to build curiosity. Like I think especially if you're doing an interview format like you're doing and like I do, you just have to get curious, you have to get really interested in whoever you're talking to. And I think there's an immense business value to curiosity and openness. So that's one. I think the um, the perspective, right? Like, you you probably feel the same way. Like you've had some amazing people on your show where you're just meeting with these people and they wouldn't have met with me for coffee, but because I had a podcast, I was able to meet with them. And so when I'm meeting with Jocko Willink or when I'm meeting with these people, I'm like, wow, like to get a chance to ask them questions, yes, that benefit my audience. But honestly, a lot of the questions come from my own curiosity, my own interest, whatever I was struggling with in my life at that time. So that access was really incredible. And I and I think that as part of that access was just the diversity of, you know, we all kind of do, I, I'll just speak for myself, I do my job, I kind of have my family, I have my life here in Denver, Colorado. And no matter what that means that I'm going to be around a certain people, like right now, I'm mainly around people who have four-year-old kids because I have a four-year-old son or a soon-to-be four-year-old son. So that is limiting. But with the podcast, I just had exposure to different people with different backgrounds and different experiences and different life purposes. And I feel like that diversity of everything, diversity of career and background, like all of that is so beneficial because I just think that we get, you know, we just get these little data points. And if I'm only collecting data in this one tiny area, it's very limiting. But when I get this data point that's way over there, I'm like, oh, I never thought of that. And, you know, it's, it's, um, uh, I see it on LinkedIn where I spend a lot of my time. Uh, just literally three days ago, I posted something on LinkedIn and this this lady who's got, got a massive following posted and she, um, what was her, like the, the point was that like, um, that it's like a privilege to be able to even be self-promotional. And it was like, it was like, it's, it's a LinkedIn comment, but it was like profound. I'm like still thinking about it. I'm like, oh, that I had not thought about that. But, you know, she's 
uh, a woman of color and she ha- like she's a female and I'm like, oh, I get it. Like you don't have the privilege to be self-promotional. Like that's even something I take for granted. So I just really value these little data points that are outside of my own experience because then it broadens the picture. It kind of reorients how I'm thinking about a problem. How do you see podcasting these days? It's it's frothy. You know, it's it's like very um, it's come a long way. And and I in 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 one area, I remember Tim Ferriss said this years ago, where he's like, I think we're just at the start of podcasting, which I think it, to some extent is still true. Like, I think that this is a channel and a medium that's at the 20 percent of its journey. I think that there is so much room to go. And there is so much noise and, and not only noise, but sophisticated noise where you can have people who can game the system to get more exposure, who can you know game the system to get bigger. And so I'm grateful I'm not I, I didn't start now. Like, I think it would be really hard to get, you know, to, to get as much traction as I did. And if someone is listening and they're interested, like, I don't think that there's any reason not to do it. But I also feel like given how competitive it is, I just, I'm becoming more and more a fan of intention. And, you know, to give you kudos, before we even started this conversation, you were basically asking me, like, what's your intention? Like, what's success look like? Which is such a beautiful thing to ask anyone in any interaction. But I feel like if you're going to start a podcast, that's got to be your start, which for me, in retrospect with Beyond the Uniform, I wish I would have just been clean and said, you know what, my intention is strictly to give back. That's all I'm doing this for. Or my intention is strictly to build my brand or my intention is strictly to build my network. And then I could have oriented my schedule and say, okay, if I'm just going to build a brand, I can afford to donate one hour a week. And let me really keep it to that. And I think that would have prevented the resentment or the meandering that wasn't really helpful. Yeah. Um, For me, right. I think the future of publishing is audio. I tell people if Peter Drucker was around, he might have not wrote 30 books. He probably had 30 different podcasts. And I think it's so easy now because podcasting has shifted to the popularity contest, you know? Um, and it's like, dude, you see people and they're trying to do these shows and they're looking more and more like television. So it's going to look like television. So like I have a bias for audio first, me personally. Like I love being able to look at you while we talk, but there's something intimate about having a conversation as opposed to having a conversation with cameras in your face. Right. It's just a little different. And so for me, right, I stay first on the audio side of the house. Um, I still think there's opportunities. But again, people got to show up. You know, like I know what the game is now. You got to show up. You got to believe in what you're doing. You got to be curious, um, just like you said. Um, and it is uh, like I'm. you got to be bullish on it. I think I think you got to really be committed to the audio for you. When you when did you realize you had an audience and how did you. How did that affect how you were showing up? You know, it's one thing when you're talking into the void, you got like zero listeners. Then all of a sudden people start texting you saying, I heard your episode. And like now you feel like this obligation to like people. It's so funny, though, man, because hearing that, I realize how big the comparison thing is in my life, because because for me, you know, I think that I think that all in beyond the uniform has had somewhere between three and 400,000 listens, right? It's, let's call it 350. But for me, I'm like, well, you know, some people are getting that on a single episode, you know? Like there's part of me where I'm like, so it's always, it is always comparative. So like my first reaction to hearing that is like, well, I don't really know 
that I have an audience. I've got, you know, a couple hundred people who listen to it. But but the nice reframe for that that a friend told me is is, you know, if if they Someone told you you'd go to like the Holiday Inn or the Hilton and and rent out a conference room and you were going to have 150 people or 500 people show up every single week to hear you talk. That's worth a lot. So like, I don't know. I've had, I I think because our audience is so globally distributed that the interactions are few and far between where I'll like meet someone and they'll say like, oh, I've listened to your show or they'll send me a note. And the flip side of that too is like I've benefited from so many books and podcasts and things like that. I rarely reach out to the person who creates them, so I'm always aware of that. So I guess I guess the the short answer is I don't I don't know that I've I have actually created an audience or realized that I have. You have an audience, man. If nobody, I'm telling you, I'm giving you your flowers. You have an audience. Thank you. Whenever I I don't care if five people are listening. But when I start, like, I'm doing a lot more solo episodes now. I'm putting my teacher hat on, you know, professor of entrepreneurship, helping minorities and veterans, right? So I teach on solo episodes. Y'all don't realize those solo episodes, I have, like, 15 takes, you know, because I'm very conscious of what I'm putting out. So I have to start over. I got to stop over. And so that's why I was asking about, like, when you people are actually listening to you, like, I guess for you, it didn't make any difference. You never felt nervous or it didn't affect how you showed up. I think that's one of the, I did, I I have only done a few ones where it's just me and it's hard. It is way harder. I think that's one of the things that's nice about interviewing is it felt like the focus wasn't on me. It felt like I had this, the, the, all I had was a flashlight to shine on someone where I thought it was interesting what they did. And it was just all about them, which I think is a very veteran thing to do. But, um, you know, one one thing that you're saying that makes me realize, too, is I, I think that for for social media and for podcasting, I think one one way that I see this going is that it is much more about much more niche audiences. And the truth is, if you've got the truth is, if you've got 10 people who give two shits what you have to say, that is a gift, man. And And if you just think if you impact 10 people, what that can do for the world. And I, you know, I see this with a lot of the clients I work with at Executive Presence where, you know, they might be a leading authority in cybersecurity, which is like, you know, it's a big niche, but it's, it is a niche. And they're just hitting these notes about cybersecurity that honestly, I don't care about. I don't care about that at all. But they build up an audience of people who are all about that and, and an audience of a small group of people interested in the same thing can change the world. Right. And so, like, I really I'm saying this for myself as much as I am for your audience of like, let's just lower our expectation. Like, we don't have to have millions. We don't have to have 300 million subscribers. If you have 10 people who really value what you're saying, they may go on and do something way beyond what you could ever do. And that's that could be your impact on the world. I also say people don't know what's going on behind the scenes. I had a podcast guest say, like, dude, he was having like hundreds of thousands of downloads. Never able to monetize his podcast. Never one single lead to come through his podcast, right? And so, again, people see stuff, right? It looks good. But behind the scenes, like, you have no idea, which goes back to what I said before about, you know, keeping your eyes uh, on your own on your own paper. How hard was it to show up, though? Like, I mean, I would love for you to just put perspective what it took to run that operation behind, beyond the uniform, behind the scenes. You know, I've not been great recently, but I would say for 
99% of four years, I never missed a single episode in a single week. I, I would, I, I should go back and look at that, but I would wager that that's true. And in one or two months, I did like an episode a day. I just got super excited and I was doing like five episodes a week, which was way overkill. So man, what did that take? Um, I clearly was getting something out of it. Like even right now with you, like I find these conversations so energizing. And and um, so I think I think that was part of it was like, it was almost like that addictive hit of like each episode, I was meeting someone, I was energizing. And at the time I was working all alone. I didn't have a team for a lot of that period of time. And so that was like a really big component of my professional uh, community was like having people to just riff with. But, you know, I imagine I had to say no to a lot of things as well to make that happen. And, and um, you know, Steve Bain was is a guy who's helped me throughout almost the entirety of Beyond the Uniform. And that's one thing it took to keep me showing up. There were so many times, honestly, where I was just going to throw in the towel. And Steve is just even more tenacious than me. He's like, we got, let's keep going. Let me get a guest. And just like, so I think that was another thing of like having someone, someone in your co-pilot seat to kind of just keep you going and keep that um, keep that momentum. And, and last thing I'll say is like, for me, and I imagine this is universal, it doesn't take a lot to keep going. And that like, I feel like I'd hit these low points and then someone would message me and they're like, you know, it'd be like, Hey, I'm sure you get a lot of notes, which you don't sure you get a lot of notes like this, but you know, your podcast means a lot. And I feel like that, you know, inhaling that drug was like enough to keep me going for six months. Cause it was just one moment of like, okay, this is making a difference for someone out there. I do find it interesting about the showing up each week, right? Like I take stuff off, like I don't even force it, you know? Um, because for me, right. I tried that like every week, you know, but it's hard, you know, and then you're like mental health and everything. And some of them like, look, I cannot be my best, you know? And like, if I do this interview or for whatever, um, and it's interesting, though, because I'm going to do a post about this. I used to play World of Warcraft back in the day. Not World of Warcraft, Warcraft 3 and Warcraft 2. So you're talking about pre-Warcraft. And I played online on Battle.net. And the reason I bring it up was you would battle other players. And every time there would be this new hack that comes. And then everyone would do that hack because they knew it would win. And so everybody tries to start doing it. And then something else changes, something else changes. I say that around podcasting and content. Because Dan Carlin runs a podcast called Hardcore History. He drops like two podcasts a year, if that. It's like 2.5. Guys like in the millions of downloads. You know, and I think sometimes as entrepreneurs, it's particularly when it comes to go to market, we're always trying to mimic other people instead of figuring out what works for us and our brand. And so that's why I'm always telling people, yo, man, there's no rules in audio. You know, like if you want to talk about X, you can talk about X. There are no rules. But it's about finding like what works for you. Oh, I love that, man. I love that. And, you know, I, I as you say that, I notice that like, you know, what I feel most proud of with executive presence is that it is like everything that we've built has been pretty much in isolation. And it is like there's a lot of people doing similar things, but we're blinders on, heads down, building in the way that we believe is right. And I just I'm just a huge believer that authenticity sells and that when we are doing our own best creative work, that results in great things. So I really like that of like not being about mimicking or hacking, but really finding your own voice or finding your own path. You mentioned that LinkedIn message I sent to you. 
the reason I did it that one, I was like, man, I'm just curious how you're able to do everything. Cause you know, we have a mutual friend, Brendan Aronson. And he's like, man, you remind me a lot of Justin Nasiri. And in Newark, we have a saying that Newark is for hustlers. And I'm not talking about like, you know, selling illegal things or anything like that. Just like in for, hustler is the urban term for entrepreneurship. We're figuring it out, right? Hey, we don't got venture capital. We're bootstrapping, yada, yada, yada. So when I was saying that, I was saying that in aspiration of like, man, I'm interested in learning more about how you think, how you do things. I see you launching ventures, et cetera, et cetera. Another thing that I looked up to, I remember you writing a post about Justin Welsh and how you paid for a one-on-one session with him. And there are a lot of listeners of this show that don't understand how much people like you and I invest in coaching, invest in courses and education. I've spent probably $100,000 on coaching between them. I love that you're bringing this up. And I don't know. Uh, so Tom Kent, I'm not sure if he's in your world. He's a uh, he military academy graduate. I love Tom. I had him on my podcast three years ago and we're still friends. And he said, he said to me, man, um, he said, if I pay a thousand dollars to someone to learn something, I know I can make 10,000 out of it. And that was such a big turning point for me. And I'll, I'll tell you the biggest difference with what I'm doing right now with executive presence than anything else I've done before. Uh, I'm part of a group called 2X. I pay them 3,500 a month. I meet with a weekly coach through them. I have an agency coach that I meet with twice a month. I pay him $850 a month. I meet with Justin Welsh pretty much every month. I pay him uh, $850 for 45 minutes. Like that's, that's right. And then I, I've got a board of advisors and I pay them $500 an hour. I've got, um, uh, a Vistage code. I, I have like my monthly expense for, for like my own virtual advisors and mentors and coaches is probably five to 10 grand a month. And it is worth every cent. And that's, you know, I'm so glad you're saying that because like, and, and I would say the same about therapy, like I, in every area of my life, it's like, man, if I can pay someone money to get me, so, you know, to learn or not make the mistake or get me moving faster, I will absolutely do it. What was the shift, right? That made you say, hey, like, like I'm a coach with the Lions Pride. You know, we do business coaching for military veterans. We focus on business, life and self. Okay. That was the first big expense I made back in 2019, right? I was like, I was on a hamster wheel. I had to get off it. You know, all these different free incubator programs or stuff wasn't cutting it. But it's like, once I made that first investment, I invest in coaching all the time. I have a branding coach. I have a business coach still, Bill Watkins. I'm doing courses and stuff. But like for you, what was it where you were like, okay, I need to spend this money because it's hard for a lot of people to get over that. It is. Um, you know, my first company, I had a lot of advisors where I didn't pay them, but they I gave them equity. But I would meet with them maybe quarterly. And I think that what I didn't realize at the time was like, it's just too infrequent. Like they, they can't remember what I was even doing as a company. And there was so much going on between then. You know, I, I have structured my life now where I don't go honestly more than three or four days without meeting someone and I'm paying them money to meet with them. But as a solo founder, like that's what I need. Like I, I think out loud, I need someone to use as a sounding board. I need someone to call out my blind spots. I need someone to tell me like you're being an idiot or you're doing something wrong. Every three or four days, I have something that I'm grappling with. It could be sales or marketing. It could be my marriage, like whatever it is. And for me, the cost of that, of me spinning 
on my own is I'm not going to sleep well or I'm going to make the wrong decision or I just don't know how to move it forward. So for me, I think that was the big turning point of saying like, okay, if I give someone money and I can meet with them frequently and they've got an aligned interest to help me grow, it's not me now, uh, you know, tumbling in isolation and in the darkness. And, and I also started to realize like, you know, I would meet with people like this guy, I meet with this guy, he's like a 70 year old agency veteran. Every question I ask him, he's got like a decade of experience behind that one specific thing. So it's like, okay, I could kind of just struggle with this on my own and take six months and figure it out. Or I can ask him and in 15 minutes, he can save me six months. It's just like a no brainer. And the, the other last thing I'll say is it's like, I just always think about these Olympic athletes that have like a dozen coaches and I'm like, that's what it takes to get the gold. You've got to have someone checking your form and you've got to have someone on your nutrition. You've got to have someone on your mindset, which is most of it. And I'm like, I want to compete at the Olympic level for what I'm doing. I can't do that alone. I have to have a team around me. And I, I almost picture, you know, the NASCAR, Jesse, Luigi, you're like pulling in and you got yeah. the dude with the tires and you got the dude with gas. You got like, I want to be that driver where I've got a team massaging me and like gassing me up because I want to do something big. 100% man. I got consultants on the nonprofit. Like I got, you know, I got a CrossFit gym. You know what I mean? I got a nutrition coach, but it's like once I, you know, once I made that first investment, it's just like a flywheel. But like I, I, no matter how much I try, I try to tell them, they're like, Mike, I see what you're doing, man. I love it. I wish I could be doing this stuff. What advice do you have? I'm like, get a virtual assistant, get a coach. Yeah, yeah I love like, that. Probably get a coach first and then get a virtual assistant. It was like, but you got to get a entrepreneurship is too hard to not have people in your corner. Like it's like having a boxing match and not having a coach in your corner, giving you pointers. But like you and I have seen it but other people on the outside still looking in. So when they say you spent $1,000 to meet with a uh, someone for one hour, they can't even fathom that. But but also, you know, the other component to complement the coaching, you know, I'm imagining with Lions Pride, you've got, first of all, connection. You've got other men and women who are in the trenches with you. That is invaluable. You've got accountability because those people are seeing what you're doing and they're kind of holding your feet to the fire. And then I know Bill's got this incredible curriculum where it's like, again, learn quickly. Like you don't have to learn sales by having a hundred sales calls that go wrong. You can learn the frameworks that will make a difference. So I really like those peer groups as well, because that that's another that's another nitrous of just getting that faster velocity. I'm gonna get my other coach on the podcast. Her name is Pia Silva. She runs No BS Agency. And what the pain I was feeling, Justin, was I got ghosted on a proposal by a venture capital firm I was trying to work with. And I did like multiple meetings. They were good to go. You know how it is? You send a proposal, they ghost you, and you're like, I suck at life. And I was like, never again. And I was on a podcast and I heard a dog whistle about this agency owner, this coach that teaches people not have to do proposals. I fell all the way down her funnel, Justin. I read her book, listened to the podcast. Next thing I know, I was swiping my credit card. I haven't written a proposal in like eight months. And for me, the investment, the quality of life, I tell people like it's an elevated level of entrepreneurship just to be able to like have that and then have that community support on the agency and branding side. So when I'm talking about brand strategy and stuff, I go to here, you know, when I'm talking about, you know, running the organization and a little bit of branding, I go here. 
but it's like it's just elevated entrepreneurship all around like it's so much more enjoyable yeah and it's that's one of the things i love about entrepreneurship is that my business it, at times it feels like my business is funding my own personal development and i know that as my company continues to grow the support I need will become more and more nuanced. Like I know there is a world in which I bring on a sales coach or a marketing coach, but it's like that's knowledge that is going to be in my body for the rest of my life. Like that's like it's such that is one of the I feel like seldom talked about benefits of being a founder is that you start to build an organization that makes you a better person. I want to talk about executive presence now. Because you said some things too, even on the coaching, you have a board of advisors, right? Which I'm sure helped with the go-to-market introductions and everything. Okay, you've got this experience getting beat up, so I'm like almost positive you were driving sales, you know. So, what did it take to go from zero to one with executive presence? The you know the. I would say the idea was a big part of it, but the idea did come out of. 10 years of experience, right? Like what we were doing, I think part of the product market fit was the pattern matching I'd built up over a decade of like realizing like, oh, this is the thing. I'll tell you the next thing that happened is I used some tool on LinkedIn to message people that met my profile, which was at the time like CEO of a 20 person or more company. And I use this tool to message out something to the equivalent of like, hey, Mike, been a while. Hope you're well. This is what I'm doing. Do you want to talk? And that literally is what funded all of our growth. I got a lot of people I hadn't talked to in years who became clients and they made referrals. And so the crazy thing is, you know, we did over a million in revenue our first year on the backs of about $8,000 of sales and marketing spend. So really nothing. And this is, you know, that was kind of our zero to one. And also just to kind of paint the complete picture, we lost clients, we gained clients and, and like that's part of the mix, right? Like part of me knowing like I'm really dialed in on our ideal client persona, but I'm dialed in because I brought on a lot of clients I shouldn't and churned them out or fired them or whatever else. So there was a lot of experimentation there. But to your point with this board of advisors, man, I reached a point, you know, towards the end of last year where I met with them and basically the feedback they gave me. And one of the guys has been with me for about 10 years, so he knows me well. But basically he was like, OK, Justin, good job on this year. We have seen the limits to which Justin Nasiri can build a company. This right here, you're starting to see this is the cathedral that you can build and it is deteriorating because this is all that you can do as a human being. But can you actually hire people to take this further? And it sucked to hear that, right? That's like sticking a knife in a wound that's eight years old for me, right? But I did. Like I just brought on this girl who's a you know Stanford MBA, Boston Consulting Group, like really, really great, you know, and I brought on a couple people like her and I'm, I'm experiencing like, wow, this is like one to two now. Like I'm not doing a lot now. I'm like starting to, for the first time in a long time, be able to stretch out and say, okay, I, I need to manage. I need to stop doing, which is a big shift of gears for me. I don't think one, I wouldn't have had the structure to get to where I was without this 2X program, which was bringing a lot of structure into my business. And two, I wouldn't have shifted into second gear without that specific advisor calling me to, to the mat and being like, dude, 
You want to run a one-person show with you know some pretty junior people, this is what you get. You want to take it to the next level, you cannot be doing all of this stuff. You cannot do anything anymore. You have to start managing. And, and that was painful to hear. And I'm, I'm at a much better spot because I had someone giving me really hard truths. And I was open to receiving that because, I mean, quite frankly, early in my career, I wasn't open to that sort of feedback. No, that's amazing. And you, I mean, those are varsity moves. That's why I want you to talk about it, right? Board of advisors, people don't understand, right? Like that is another, that's a key, that can be a key thrust, you know? Um, you invested in coaching, like you're doing advanced level, like higher level entrepreneurship beyond just like, like it is the bane of my existence. But like, yo, these, these, uh, oh, he got, I mean, you're you're in that case, but like you said, it was a 10 year overnight success. First time entrepreneur out the gate, hundred million dollars in revenue first year. Okay, what? Forbes 30 under 30, all this, like in the Lions Pride, like lead gen is fucking hard. We tell people, like, you know, all these entrepreneurs, and these are people that have been in business 25 years, you know, and they're in there learning how to do lead gen because it's a constant kind of thing. But again, hearing you talk, hearing like where you're at now, I'm like, man, like that's awesome. And a lot of our community, and I mean the veteran community don't know it because I think we have an ego thing. I think we think we're really good at leadership. We're really good at just going away, figuring it out. But like, it's different in business. It's like, it's combat, right? You can only go so far till all your platoon is dead. And for a lot of us, that's cash, that's revenue, that's team members. So we can't be trying to force a round peg into a square hole because of ego that we think we can just figure this out. Well, let me break down one thing too, that you, you jogged my memory. I haven't talked about this before, but um, you know, specifically with this hire that I brought on, who's been so pivotal for me, there was a person six months ago where I, you know, just loved this guy and made him an offer to join. You know, I would have given him anything, co-founder Tyler or anything, and he turned it down to do something else. But that opened me up to the thought of bringing someone on. And then I posted on LinkedIn. I said I was looking for this business athlete. Someone made an intro and I met this guy, Justin. And this dude was even better than the previous guy. And I'm like, oh, wow, this is a person who could take over Twitter and could take over the interviews. And it opened up my thinking and I was open to it. I made him an offer and he went to another company. And I had this happen three or four times, but every time it opened me up to bringing on someone better and every time the next offer I gave, I'm like, wow, this person is way better than the last four people. And I just, I'm trying to remember that for myself is that sometimes I feel like, you know, however you want to take this, like the universe or the world or whatever, it's giving us these challenges that feel like a failure, but it's really just teaching us to open up or teaching us to change something or we're learning something about ourselves. But I just look back and I see myself, I, I would have never thought to hire someone like this six months ago. But each of these tiny steps was opened me up more and more and more that when I met this lady, I was like, OK, I'm, I, let's 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 LFG, man. Let's go for it, man. Let's do this. And I wouldn't have done that six months ago if I hadn't made that first offer to someone who was great, but they're not what I ended up with. So I haven't covered this yet on this show about attracting A players. But what do you think it is about your company that was able to attract a Boston consultant, you know, caliber of person? I don't know, man. Um, some of it was the velocity. I think some of it was just me. I mean, like literally I'd show them our financials and I'm look, I'm like, look, this is what we've spent on marketing and this is the hockey stick of growth. And I think that like, I, I'm realizing 
it, I'm realizing the, you know, this is far away from uh, uh, a home run, right? Like I've got so far to go, right? So I'm trying to remember with humility that there's a lot of roller coaster ahead for executive presence in me, but I've been very, very fortunate. And I see how kind of momentum leads to momentum, right? Like I got a lot of traction, which allowed me to bring this person on. And I think that, you know, if she stays with me, she's going to tap into her networks for hiring. It's like, you kind of see the cycle where you get a lucky break and that makes the next lucky break slightly more possible. And so I, you know, I think of that with people like from the PayPal mafia, I'm like, oh, okay, obviously they're talented, but they had a win, they had momentum, they had money, they had a network. It doesn't make it a guarantee they'll succeed, but in this game, a fraction of a percentage chance of probability of success makes a difference. So I've had the first taste of that where I had a lot of wins last year, and that allowed me to bring someone on that I otherwise wouldn't have, and that person makes my success slightly more possible. So, um, you know, it's, it is, you know, I don't want to cheapen the hard work and the freaking crazy decade that took to get me here. And there's so much luck in all of this, right? Like the timing was right. This person was available. Like there's, it's hard to be cocky when you realize how much serendipity there has been. I call it, um, first of all, it's the left and right lateral limits to what Jim Collins calls return on luck, you know? So you gotta be in a position. So when that luck does come, you can freaking hit a home run. But if you're sitting on the side of the pool, you know, you're never going to be in position. So it's like people say this luck. And I, when you, when you brought up the word privilege, I don't like that word anymore, you know, because like people see me and they're like, oh, Mike, you're so lucky. It's like Mike read like 400 fucking business books. Mike spent $100,000 on business coaching. So, you know, I, I just view that in a different lens um, these days. Uh, but, man, you've got to be in a position to, to, to hit that home run. And so with coming off such a high year, right? You made a lot of revenue, hockey stick growth. Now it's a new year. You got to do it all over again. What are you focused on and how can we as a community support and help? I think that, um, I think that this year for me, like the first two words that come to mind is, is structure and team. I am not a structured person. And so I've really been deliberate in hiring people. You know, I'm, I'm very ADD, shiny object, kind of like the true visionary. I need to build out the people and the process and the structure to offset that because I know we succeed when we are a machine, when we put in client and we output success. Like, so I'm really focused this year on creating the machinery and even more important, the team, like the, the days of me being in the limelight, the days of me rolling up my sleeves and doing what's comfortable, which is getting shit done. Like, I love to do that. I love to check things off. But for me to take this company to the next level, I got to like slough that off. And I got to step back to honestly a level of leadership I haven't felt since I left submarines where it's like, oh, okay, I got experts here. You guys all know way more about your area than I do. My job is to set the vision, to set the strategy and to motivate and aspire and retain and attract. And it's terrifying, man. I don't have, I don't, I got a lot of reps in failed entrepreneurship. I don't have a lot of reps on that. 
But I think, you know, it's the dark night, dude. It's like, what do you have to become to save Gotham? If I got to be this, then that's what I got to come. So that's my year is like, how can I turn into that leader and that manager to continue to attract the right people to build the machinery? Because I'm I'm done, man. I've wiped the grease off my hands and I know I'm not capable of that, but I know I can lead and inspire. Yeah, we got to get you in your zone of genius. You know, you be shaking hands and kissing babies, right? Let everybody else run the machine. Yes. But kudos to you, man. And congratulations on all your success. And like I said, got a great audience here. I got a great network. So again, if you have any ask for the community, feel free to go ahead and drop it so we can support. And then also let us know where we can uh, follow you at. Oh, I appreciate that. I'll say the specific ask is right now, the type of person we're targeting is, is just to be simple, a, a CEO who's got a team of between 50 and, a, and 500 employees. So if you know someone running a company, uh, they I can absolutely guarantee they would benefit from what we're doing, which is making them into a knowledge authority on LinkedIn. Uh, those intros are hugely helpful. Um, and I'm at Justin at executivepresence.io. You can find me on LinkedIn. Either one I'm pretty responsive on. Man, I appreciate you. Thanks for tuning in with us. It's always a pleasure chopping it up, man. I, this was an interview I was actually really looking forward to. Like, this is my hit list. There's a couple people that I'm looking uh, looking forward to. And for all our listeners, do me a favor. Go ahead and subscribe to the Dog Whistle Brandon newsletter at the link in the show notes. If there's a topic you want me to cover on the show or in the newsletter, drop me a line at michaelweirironbound.com or message me directly on LinkedIn at Iron Mike Stedman. Dog Whistle Branding is brought to you by the team at Ironbound Media, where we provide no-fluff and high-impact brand strategy for veteran-owned businesses. We believe that audio is the future of publishing, and we're committed to leading the movement for the veteran entrepreneurial community. You can learn more by visiting our website, ironboundmedia.com. This series is powered by the Lions Pride, a professional training and coaching company for badass founders. We serve mission-driven, high-performing small business owners with at-the-ready resources, battle-tested tools, and full-service support. We're proud to support veteran and other badass-owned businesses at every stage of growth. You can learn more and get more at thelionspride.com. Thank you.